Well, I want to kind of jump into our time together. And as, we've, as we said, we're in this series we've entitled In the Beginning, because we thought it was really important to put the Christmas story in the bigger story of, of the Bible, to understand that the Christmas story is in a context and that it's this incredible plot twist that no one saw coming, that although the Jewish people were hoping and waiting for a Messiah, they never pictured that God himself would be who would come into the world. We said that in the beginning, God created human life, but at Christmas, he entered it. Guys, that is profound, that God himself would enter our lives, enter this world, become human, and experience all the things that humans experience and show us once and for all that God is not a distant deity. He is not some God far off, that he cares, that he came, and that he loves us. And that's where we're celebrating. Amen? Come on. Like, amen? amen? That's right. God cares. And he came at Christmas. Then last week, we looked at the two main characters of Christmas. We looked at Joseph and Mary. And we saw that, like so many others in the Bible, they have to make this decision. Are they going to trust God or not? Are they going to step up to what God's calling them to do or not? They did, but the question is, will we, right? That was kind of what we looked at last week. It's like, so who are the Mary and Josephs of this generation? Who has their yes on the table? Who, who can God trust with a call like what he trusted Mary and Joseph with? And that's kind of something that I've been thinking about all week. And even in that, in that story, even there, we see the echoes of, of creation, the, the beginning that God started with creation, even in the new creation with Jesus, as we saw that even in the conception of the baby Jesus, we see instead of God creating a woman from a solitary man, God is going to make his son from a solitary woman. So we even see in the birth story of Jesus an echo of, of Eden, an echo of the creation story as he brings new creation into the world. It's all tied together. So today in this kind of third sermon in this series, before we go across the street and celebrate uh, Christmas Eve together, I want to I talk today about something that's true about Christmas, uh, whether we like it or not, something that's just a cultural fact about Christmas. And that's this, that Christmas is one of these times of year that there's this sense of buildup to it, right? This sense of anticipation. And again, maybe this makes you excited or maybe this makes you like nervous or stressed out. But every time you see decorations, every time you turn the radio on this time of year, it's a reminder, sometimes a not so subtle reminder, right, that Christmas is coming. For most of us, you know, there's something we're doing in our homes to, to count the, the, the holiday down. Maybe you have an advent calendar and your kids race to every morning. They open one of the little, I don't know, Trader Joe's chocolate chocolates, you know, and it's this, you know, they fight over that and it's the spirit of Christmas and all that stuff. Or maybe you have that countdown, you know, to Christmas clock kind of running. My mom and dad have one of those and you just get in there and say, oh yeah, there's 11 more days. You know, we have this thing where the little snowflake keeps moving down the calendar, right? Um, for, for me, it, it usually happens, the first hints usually happen in, um, in early September, because one of my favorite stores, and if John Halverson was here, he, he, would, he would have testified, is Costco. Any other Costco lovers in the room, right? Yes, yes, of course, yes. Um, so now with Costco, um, you know, love them or not, the thing is around early September, if you know where to look, you'll see the very first 
Christmas decorations coming out. They're usually behind the sunscreen and the flip-flops, but they're there. And it's ridiculous because I myself am in t-shirts and flip-flops at that moment. And I think I can't believe it's already coming. But yes, they want to get ahead of the curve. I'm sure they have a marketing reason for it. But there it is, right? Christmas is coming. And the longer, the, the longer I pastor and the more that I, I, I really uh, kind of live on this planet, with all the anticipation, with all of the reminders of Christmas, there's also um, those that this, the holiday is not always a good reminder because it's a time where they're going to be, there's, there's these memories of people um, that are no longer here. Uh, there are people that are, that are reminded at those holiday times that, you know, um, their loved ones are gone. And in our family, all of my grandparents are now gone. And it's a, it's a, it's a reality that when we gather, we won't have, um, you know, those members of our family there. And so whether it's anticipation, like a child can't wait for Santa to come, or it's uh, a dread because I'm missing people I care. This season, this Christmas time, is a time that we build to. It's a time of anticipation. And why I bring that up is because today I want to talk about anticipation. Because there are two characters in the Christmas story today that we're going to look at. They're minor characters. They're not as prominent as Joseph and Mary. But they're in the story and they're anticipating. And I want to talk about this because I think this is very fascinating that in the Christmas story are two characters that are waiting. And I want to look at them today and I want to kind of, I want to talk about what we can learn about waiting. There's, I think, something deep and powerful about waiting. And we see this in the Christmas story. So I want to look at this. We're going to dive into Luke chapter two. Brian read a little bit of it earlier. So let's look at this story of these two characters that wait and what is it that God wants to teach us about waiting, um, in particular, about waiting well? So let's dive into it. Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 25, it says, At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Notice how he's described. He was righteous and devout and was, let's all read this, was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. So I want to introduce this guy, Simeon. We're going to find that he's an older man, and he's, he's righteous and devout, and he's waiting. There's something about this man. He has this prophetic gift. He's got this, this sense that there's um, something about to happen. He can feel it. The Spirit has revealed this to him. The, go, the text goes on. It says, the Holy Spirit was upon him and revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so I, I want you just to consider this man, Simeon, for a minute. So I don't know exactly how this prophetic gift worked for Simeon, but he was, he was clearly led and clearly told or was revealed that he would not die until he'd seen the Messiah. Now, if you're a Jew and you feel that you have that sense that God is telling you this clearly, um, this would have activated a lot of hope in your heart. Because for a Jew, the Messiah was a powerful promise that God was going to come and redeem Israel, right? And so if you were a Jew and you had this sense, I'm not going to die until the Messiah comes. Like, I will live to see the Messiah. That would have been, I think, an incredible thing for Simeon. And I want us to just meditate on that for a moment, okay? I want you to imagine being Simeon for a second. Imagine how this hope would have shaped him. 
how it would have guided his decisions, how it would have really led his life, how, how this waiting would have led to a different way of living. I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about Simeon as he sees Rome, the imperial greatness of this empire when their boot on all of their subjugated lands, including Israel. I want you to imagine Simeon thinking to himself, yeah, Rome, I got news for you. The Messiah is on his way, you know, with maybe a little glint in his eye, a little, a little smile in his, in his soul as he thinks about this revelation that the Messiah is coming, that God himself, and maybe he didn't, again, fully understand what it meant, but God himself would deliver Israel. And so that's Simeon. I want, I want that thought just to kind of simmer in your hearts as we continue in our story. What would it, how would that have hope have shaped Simeon's everyday life? Let's, let's move on. Um, uh, let's talk about what happens. That day, verse 27, the spirit led him to the temple when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required. Simeon was there. I want to I give you a little bit of a background on this because just kind of fun background information to fill the story out. So, so the text tells us that Mary and Joseph are headed to the temple. Now, remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's about two miles to the south of the temple, not very far away. When I was there last year, you could easily see the Church of the Nativity from the Temple Mount. It's just right there. And so Jesus um, was born in Bethlehem. And I want to kind of fill out the, the Jewish requirements here, what this text is saying. And so according to the Jewish law, if, if you had a male child and, and the, the son was born, you would wait till the eighth day um, to circumcise the son. For every woman that gives birth to a child in the Jewish culture, you, are, you go through a seven-day period of ritual uncleanness. Um, so you're ritually unclean for seven days. Whenever you as a Jew are ritually unclean, you're going to need to offer some sort of sacrifice or to go through some sort of cleansing. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So for Mary, uh, she is giving birth to her firstborn son, which we'll factor in in a minute. And so she, she goes through this seven-day, you know, customary period of, of uncleanness. On the eighth day, they're going to they're gonna circumcise Jesus. That circumcision would be the day he's named. And the text says he's named Jesus because Gabriel the angel said that was the name that they were to give him. So I want you to kind of picture this. So um, Joseph and Mary have had their baby. Uh, Jesus is born seven days later. Now she's uh, now going to enter into the day of circumcision for Jesus, the eighth day. And then whether or not you had a male child or a female child depended on the next thing. If it was a male child, you would wait 33 days and then you would go to the temple. And at the temple, you would give what, what's called a purification offering. And that was how you kind of, you know, exited the entire kind of birth of your, of your child and now are going through that cleansing to be reconnected to the community, okay? If it was a female child, you waited 66 days. Either way, after a birth of a baby, there was this period of time that women were kind of preparing to go to the temple. And at that point, you would do two things. You would offer yourself that sacrifice for yourself, and you would, in, in like way, in like manner, kind of dedicate your child. It was kind of this, this special moment, okay? 
But for Mary and Joseph, there was a third thing that was happening. So they had these two things. They had the, the consecration offering or the purification offering. And then also the fact that, that now, um, you know, Jesus was being dedicated to, to Yahweh. But because Jesus was Mary's firstborn son, there was one other requirement by the law. And this is really interesting. This is the ransom offering. This is because if you know your history with the Jewish nation, that, that Israel was ransomed or redeemed from, it, from Egypt. Do you guys remember the story? And as God redeems or ransoms Israel from the slavery of Egypt, the, there's a final plague of the 10 plagues. It's the Passover, the final moment where Yahweh will decisively judge Egypt. And here's what Yahweh tells the people. He says, I am going to pass over the, the every, every home in this area, in, in Egypt and where Israel was living. And if there is blood that's applied to the, to the, the, the doorway of the home, then the, is, the angel will pass over and nothing will happen to the home. But if there's no blood on the door, uh, you know, doorway of the home, then the angel will strike the firstborn son. And so the, the tradition of Passover becomes a Jewish uh, holiday and a Jewish tradition. Yom Kippur, it's when the animal is, is now slain, killed, a lamb, and the blood of that lamb is literally applied to the doorpost to remember this great deliverance from Egypt into the promised land. And so what God basically told Israel is, I'm making a claim to your firstborns. I'm making a claim to all firstborns for all time and eternity. The firstborns will always belong to me. But God made a, a concession to Israel. He said, instead of, I, instead of you giving me all of your firstborn sons to employ in the service of the temple or tabernacle, I'm going to let there be a substitution. Guys, I'm giving you re all this history for a reason because there's rich imagery here for what happens with Jesus. And so God says, this concession is a substitution. I'm going to allow your firstborns to be substituted for a, a complete tribe, the tribe of Levi. And one of the families of that tribe, the Aaron, the Aaron descendants, they will be the priest. So rather than you sending me all of your firstborn sons to do service in the temple, to do service in the tabernacle, we'll allow the one tribe, the Levites, take your place. But here's the deal. You'll have to pay a shekel a shekel fee. It's a five shekel tax of some sort, a ransom, so that your son will now be able to be replaced by the tribe of Levi. Now, I want you to see all this imagery in our story. I want you to understand that when Mary is paying the five shekels for the ransom of her son, Jesus, it's going to be Jesus himself that ransoms Mary later. Come on. And when Mary is thinking about how Jesus, her firstborn son, there's a substitute that God instituted way back centuries earlier where the tribe of Levi will substitute for the rest of the nations. It's, it's the substitutionary atonement that Jesus himself will provide, that he will be our substitute. All of these images, even the lamb image, the blood image, all of this image that the Israelites have been practicing in Torah for, for generations is preparing them for when God would send the lamb and he would be our substitute and he would redeem us and we would no longer be under threat of death. Come on, this is exciting stuff. All of these things are happening in the temple. So this little, this little statement, what the law required has so much backloaded into it. I couldn't just pass it up. I had to share that with you. All that imagery is happening when Mary and Joseph show up 
to dedicate their child. Okay, let's get back to the story now. So I can, I'm going to read between the lines a bit because I know humans and I know people, and I just know how it is when you have a little baby, right? So I'm sure there was all this religious symbolism and imagery and all this excitement stuff, but I'm also sure that a young mother is kind of excited that her son is coming to be presented to the world, right? That's just what moms do. And so I can imagine that at this moment, Mary is holding Jesus, and, and they're going through these rituals uh, to kind of dedicate Jesus. And at this kind of like probably proud moment for Mary and Joseph, something strange kind of happens. And let's pick the story up there. So here it is. It says, Simon was there, this, this person, we, or Simeon, this person we just mentioned. And it says, he took the child in his arms and he praised God saying, sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you've prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people, Israel. You guys, I want you to just imagine Mary again. She's this young mother. She's brought Jesus for this powerful day of dedication, this offering of these turtle doves uh, that kind of reinstitute her back into the community after that you know, birthing period is over. And at this kind of proud moment, this prophetic figure comes and grabs her baby out of her arms. Now, I don't know, moms in here, how many of you guys would appreciate some strange guy coming to, that you don't really know at church, you know, and you're here to dedicate your child. You know, we do that here. And you're like, your baby's all dressed up. You know, I guess Jesus would be in a little suit, you know, with a hat, I don't know, okay? And all of a sudden, this Kind of old guy comes walking up, grabs your kid, holds him up and starts, I mean, you're like, what has happened right now, right? I'm, I'm sure Mary's like prodding Joseph and Joseph's like, listen, <laughs> this isn't some kind of weird guy. This is, this is some holy moment here. And, 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 and Simeon says these words about Jesus, that these words that are so powerful. I have seen your salvation which you've prepared for all people to reveal your light to the nations and the, and, and the glory of God to the people, Israel. At that moment, I think that Mary is just blown away. The text says that the, Jesus's parents were amazed at what was being said about him. But you know, <clears throat> Simeon isn't done. Simeon turns then at that moment and he looks at Mary and he says these words. He says, Mary, <clears throat> this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. I want you to think about, about that statement that Simeon's making. It's as if he's holding Jesus and he's looking at Mary now and he says, Mary, I need to tell you a little bit about what's happening or what's about to happen with your son. That, that this, this son of yours is gonna be a divider. The son of yours is going to be somebody that is, is, is a game changer for everyone. That this son Jesus that you hold, that you nurse, this son Jesus, when he gets older, he will be a divider. Some will rise and some will fall. Verse 35 goes on. It says, as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. I, I want to think about that. Simeon says that Mary, this Jesus, this child, will be such a powerful and, and indismissible figure that when he 
acts, when he speaks, when he preaches, when he teaches, when he moves, there will be there will be a division caused. Some will come to Jesus and call him Lord. Others will curse him and call him the devil. This is the fact. The fact of the matter is Jesus will reveal the secret hearts of every person he meets. And if you know the stories, if you've read the gospels, you've seen that. You saw that Jesus interacts with religious leaders. He interacts with sinners and tax collectors. He interacts with the rich and the poor. And in every interaction and every, every time he's engaging with people, there's always a decision when you meet Jesus. You either decide to fall at his feet and follow him with your life, or you decide he's a fraud or worse. Jesus reveals our deepest thoughts. And you know what? He does that still. He doesn't just do that in the first century. See, every time we gather and every time we teach and preach and and speak of Jesus, the spirit is moving in our own hearts and and we ourselves are are not unchanged. We're either gonna be moved toward Jesus or we're gonna be pushed away from Jesus because the deepest thoughts of our hearts are revealed when Jesus shows up. And then he says, and a sword will pierce your very soul. A nod, I think, to Mary's witness to the crucifixion of Jesus. Mary is one of the few disciples who are present when Jesus breathes his last on the cross. And you can imagine the the sword piercing Mary as she sees Jesus and his life poured out. But Simon isn't the only person there. There's this other character there. And it's a, it's a woman, an old woman. She's also present. And I think this is fascinating that Luke has, has, has written the story really in such a way that you see this contrast. You have a young couple with Mary and Joseph, and you also have an older, they're not a couple, but it's a man and woman, and they're also present. And I think there's this fascinating parallelism between Mary and Joseph and Anna, this woman we're going to read about, and Simeon. Mary and Joseph, they weren't expecting Jesus at all, right? The angel Gabriel came to them, and it was this unexpected, like, you have this big, life-changing, you know, plot twist that's happening to you. But Anna and Simeon are on the other side, and they're, they're, they are expecting Jesus. And I want to read about Anna. This is so interesting. It says, It says, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple, and she was the daughter of Phanel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when when they had only been married for seven years, and then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. Notice this. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. Verse 38 says, she came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph. And she began praising God. She talked about how the, she talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So this other character in the story today, Anna, she's, she's there at that same moment. Now, Simeon was led by the spirit to be at the temple on the exact day that Jesus was being dedicated. But Anna always was there. The text tells us that she lived there, basically. Anna was an old widow that had decided to spend her days in consecration and in expectation of God. She's in the temple and she's praying. The text says she's worshiping, she's fasting. Guys, she's a fixture. I mean, to use our vernacular today, I mean, every time the door of the church is open, she's there. She's there before the pastor's there. She's camped out front. Like this is who Anna was. 
Anna was someone that if you needed someone to pray for you, you would get her on your team. Anna was somebody that if you needed someone that would encourage you because she had such a walk with Jesus, she just, just, just the way she worshiped Yahweh would just rub off on you. That's Anna. And so I want you to picture this moment of, of Simeon holding Jesus of prophesying over what Jesus would do and, and how, his, how his ministry would reveal hearts. And at that same moment, here comes Anna. And she's, so to speak, validating Simeon's prophecy. Guys, I want to talk about this for a second. You have two people in this story who spent their time waiting. I want to talk about waiting for a second. I want to talk about why does Luke spend precious real estate in his letter or his book here talking about these two figures who wait. And I want to say this. I want to say this. I think all of us wait. I think a lot of us spend our days waiting. And I'm not talking about waiting for your pizza or waiting for, you know, the uh, quick line at at Chick-fil-A. Man, that line is fast, isn't it? You don't have to wait long there, right? But I'm just talking about the longing. That's what I'm talking about today. I'm, I'm talking about what are, you, what are you waiting for? You know, when I was in high school, teaching high school, I, it wouldn't take long for the kids to say, man, I cannot wait to graduate, right? I mean, some of these kids had senior-itis like the day the senior year started. Sometimes it started in their junior year, and Michelle and I would say we need to take them and get them therapy because this is terrible. They don't even want to be in high school, right? Um, and then the irony of that is, right, you have, you have kids that can't wait to graduate high school, and then all of us adults, what do we say? Man, I wish I could go back to high school, right? So it's like the kids don't know what they have, and then we, like, man, we wish we could go back. And so it's this kind of this, this sense that humans have. And maybe when, you, when you're at work and you're talking to your friends, it's like, man, I cannot wait for the weekend, you know? And it's like, I just can't wait. I just hate this job. I can't wait for Friday, you know, or maybe it's, I can't wait for vacation or you get a little older. I can't wait to retire, you know, wherever you are. And I'm just going to say this. I just don't think it takes long for people to reveal what they're waiting for. I want to ask you, what are you waiting for? And, and I think it's an important question that, that really kind of reveals like the ordered features of your heart. Because I think, I think, guys, well, it's not wrong at all to be excited about a vacation or the weekend. I do think the human heart can become so wrapped up in lesser loves. We can become so affected by just life that our gaze leaves heaven and it fixes on earth. And when you ask me what I'm waiting for, it's a bunch of stuff right here. Guys, there's a prophetic tradition in scripture and Anna and Simeon are showing us it. There's this sense that all true believers, whether you lived in the Old Testament or you live in the New Testament, should live with a longing in our hearts. Come on, a longing for the king. Guys, I love this artwork that Ray drew for us today. This is a beautiful picture of what I'm talking about. You have these these two pictures. And if you lived in the Old Testament, you were longing for what we now know was the first coming of God in Jesus, right? When Jesus was born as a baby. But what you find right away, even in the teaching of Jesus, are the teachings that he will return, that he isn't staying, that Jesus had a mission in that first coming to pay for our sins on the cross, to rise from the dead and defeat death. Come on, we feel it now, right? And to one day come back, but he's left us with a mission. And this mission requires a longing. 
It requires a waiting. It requires a hungering for his second coming. Guys, I want us to think about this today. Look at how Jesus teaches this in this one parable. In Luke chapter 12, he says this. He says, be dressed. At that Luke 12, guys. He says, be dressed and ready for service. Keeping your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Look what he says. It will be good for those servants whose masters find them watching when he comes. What are you waiting for? Guys, can I say something? That what we wait for determines what we live for. Can, can you think about that for a second? That, that, that if I'm waiting for the weekend, if I'm waiting for the girlfriend, if I'm waiting for the boyfriend, if I'm waiting for the whatever, the degree to be done, whatever I wait for really shapes what I live for. And friends, when I'm not waiting well, when I'm not waiting for the things that God really calls me to wait for, I won't live well. Are you with me this morning? When I make a lesser love my entire focus, it distorts like how I live. When I make that my goal, and guys, I'm a super super goal-oriented guy. Like that's my, that's my wiring. I just can't help it. I get a goal and I get so fixated on that goal that it's really easy for me to become so kind of, kind of just like tunnel vision there that I don't even think about anything else. And I want to confess, I think that's how the enemy gets me distracted. But I got some good news for you. When you like Simeon or Anna when you choose to wait well, and what I mean by that is you have your affection set on things above. You're like, you know what? Man, one day Jesus is gonna return. One day that king that died on the cross, he's gonna come for his bride. And I'm a part of that number. I'm a part of that kingdom. And when he returns, he's gonna make every wrong right. He's gonna wipe away every tear. Guys, when you wait well, you're gonna live well. Are you with me this morning? Thank you. Yeah, let's, say, let's celebrate that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to shape your decisions. Like I told you, I think if, if we had a conversation with Simeon, and I were to ask Simeon this morning, hey, Simeon, how did knowing you were going to live to see Jesus, how did that shape how you lived your life? I think he would say it made me really think all the time about things above. It made me keep my hope alive when it wanted, when it wanted to die in me. Uh, speaking of hope, I want to leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis on hope. And I think this is so powerful. He says that hope is the continual looking forward to the eternal world. He says, it's not as like some modern people say, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. He says, it's one of the things a Christian was meant to do. He says, it doesn't mean that we live the, leave the present world as it is. Notice this, he said, this is so powerful. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. See, there's something that happens when you wait well. There's something with how you live 
when you're waiting for God's return. There's something about how you treat people when that's in your, in your mind. Hey, there's something about what I do with my finances. There's something I do with my time. There's something about how, how, where I put my, my treasure. When I'm waiting well, guys, I just live well. When I'm waiting with that sense of anticipation that he could come back today, come on. Like that gets me so excited because that tells me the time doesn't just go on forever. There is a moment, there's a space, there's a window. And right now I want I wanna be this generation Simeon. I wanna be this generation's Anna. I wanna live with anticipation that Jesus could return. So I want my friends to know about Jesus. I want them to be rescued from the judgment that's coming. I don't want them to be caught up in the enemy's defeat. I want them instead to meet the true king. Come on and bow their knees to that true king who defeated death so they can have eternal life with us because our king is coming. Friend, listen, Jesus came the first time and he changed history. And you don't have to be religious to believe that. You just gotta open your eyes, look around. The world changed when Jesus came. Guess what? The world's gonna change again when he returns. Are you with me this morning? I wanna, I wanna end with this. I wanna end with these words from Jesus and, and they, are, they are kind of sobering. He says, watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. I mean, there are two ways that you can really get off, get caught up in like pleasures and not the way God wants you to live, or you can just get caught up worrying. Jesus, watch out. He says this, don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap for that day, talking about his return, will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert, alert at all times and pray that you will be strong enough to escape the coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Or as John put it, and now, dear children, continue in him. And when he appears, you can be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Man, guys, if you wait well, you will live well. And you will not be ashamed when Jesus returns. I was, say, I was thinking this yesterday as we were cleaning the floor and getting the new building ready. And this sense, friends, that we have, I feel so strongly in my bones as a church that God has positioned us as a church to bring the good news to Henderson. And God has given us a building. He's given us so many resources. He's given us this community. And friends, how much, how much is God giving right to us? But we must be a people that step up to that vision. We must be a people that embrace that call. We must not allow ourselves to get caught up with any lesser love. I'm okay with vacations. I'm okay with graduating. I'm okay with benchmarks and, and, and goals. But friends, there's only really one thing I need to be living for. And that's the kingdom of heaven. Because if you seek first the kingdom of heaven, all these things are added unto us. And I wanna try to pastor this community towards waiting well. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's be a church that waits well. And as you stand, I want you to really have a moment with Jesus right where you are. Just a moment where you can reflect on today's message before we run out to the, the mall or wherever you're going. We don't go to the mall anymore. We just go to the internet. But uh, before you run off to your day, can you just reflect with me for a moment? Father, Holy Spirit of God, I'm asking you for a minute with these 
dear, dear friends of mine, that your spirit would speak to their hearts. If you're here this morning and you, or you're watching online right now, I just want you to have a moment where you ask this question of yourself, what am I waiting for? What am I really waiting for? What am I longing for? And some of us, guys, I've, I've spoke to people who are just longing for a relationship so bad that they compromise all kinds of things and they jump into all kinds of crazy relationships that aren't right for them because they were just longing. It just, it just, it just wrapped their heart up. They couldn't even see like the wisdom God was trying to give to them because they weren't waiting well. What are you waiting for? I've seen others get so caught up and I'm, I'm trying, I long to, for financial security. I long to make a bunch of money to get myself where I wanna be because I, I never had that growing up or whatever the reasons are. And their hearts are so caught up in a lesser love that they live all their days to only find out they missed it. What are you waiting for? You know what's beautiful about this message? When Jesus really has your loves, no one can take it. When Jesus really has your affections, doesn't matter what your boss does, doesn't matter what that relationship does, doesn't matter because you know he's got your first love. There's no lesser love that can compare to his love. Man, I want to preach a different sermon right now. Whoo! There's no love compared to his love. His love wakes us up. His love breathes life into our dead bones. His love is what we were made to explore and enjoy for eternity. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, we want to make it really clear. And every time we gather, we want to make this clear. We, we call it the ABCs, and I'll put it on the screen. Here it is. First, it's admitting. It's admitting that you have sinned against God. It's admitting you've done bad things. You know they're wrong and that you need to be forgiven. Guys, you can't receive forgiveness if you don't realize you need it. And then it's B, it's believing. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah King. He died on the cross. He was my sub, he took my place and he canceled out my sin. And then you, you commit. Jesus, I give you my allegiance. I, I have no more no more hesitancy telling people I belong to Jesus. I'm not ashamed of him. And you get baptized publicly declaring to everyone that you belong to Jesus. If you've never trusted Jesus right where you are, you could pray this prayer. God, right now, God, I admit I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong. God, right now, I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you died for me and you came back to life and I commit my life to you. I give you my life. You gave me yours. I give you mine. In Jesus' name. If you trusted Jesus today, we want to walk with you. We have a connections group or booth in the back in the lobby where you could talk to someone or on the QR code, we have a, uh, you could scan that and you could click on that and it says, I decided to follow Jesus. Church, for those that follow Jesus already, my final words to you, I want you to go home. Maybe talk with your spouse if you're married or a friend and truly walk through, where is my heart? 
Has it been captured by a lesser love or am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Amen.